Baseball Trade Values podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, does it really feel like we've done 20 of these episodes? It has. It suddenly got busier during the offseason, didn't it? So, And we yes. got busier. Yeah, so we've been picking up the pace on these because the teams have been picking up the pace on their moves, and as usual, we got a lot to get to this week. A lot of free agent signings, a handful of really interesting little trades. Um, so let's just jump into it. Uh, let's start out with Trevor Bauer, as as I'm sure he would love. We're talking about him first. He takes the top <laughs> spot here. Um, we mentioned at the end of last week's episode that it looked like he was nearing a deal with the Mets and that the dollars that they were mentioning were right in the neighborhood of where we had him. And then what do you know, the next day he pulls a complete 180 and signs with the Dodgers. He has kind of a cheesy little announcement video to go with it. Mm-hmm. It's a whole ordeal. So he's with the Dodgers now. It's an interesting three-year deal here which is effectively a two-year deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get into the dollar values here. The first year, we'll pay him $40 million. The second year, we'll pay him $45 million. And the third year would pay him 17 And so there are opt-outs after the first year and after the second year. And so theoretically here, no matter how good he is in 2021, it's very difficult to see him opting out of a guaranteed $45 million the next <laughs> season. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, no matter how bad he is in 2022, it's pretty difficult to see him opt or opt out or opt in, excuse me, and take the 17 million that next year. It's hard to see him fall off that far. So effectively, it's a two-year deal with kind of a 17 million dollar safety cushion there in case he gets injured or if he's just atrocious. Exactly, and that's how we modeled it on our site. So we have that two-year deal. Um, valued at 85.2 and lo and behold it adds up to 85 so that's about right Um, now you might think my goodness that's a lot of money and it's because most big deals you know are for a longer time frame and that squishes down if you will the AAV down in you know in his case it would have been squished down into the 30s for example if he'd signed a six-year deal or seven-year deal or something like that but he didn't so he so everybody sort of a agreed to keep it short, which which sort of squished up, if you will, the AAV into that 40, 45 uh, range. But to your point, that third year is just an insurance policy, I think, just in case something goes terribly wrong and he's really bad or he gets injured and at least he's got $17 million coming. But if he you know, performs to expectations and the model is right, then he would opt out after that second year, in which case he would go for another big contract, presumably, and make more more than that 17. So um, we have to assume the opt out for opt out for modeling purposes, and so it's two years at 85, and so that's where we have it. Yeah, it's like the Bryce Harper deal, where it's the opposite of the Bryce Harper deal, effectively, where um, sometimes you have people saying that, like, oh, look at Bryce Harper, like he's on this mega contract, but it only pays him what 27, 28 million a year, mm-hmm. and if you look at dollars per war, look at that, he's worth I don't know 45 million or whatever in this in 2019. Pulling these numbers off the top of my head, but he's worth that mm. much. Wow, what a bargain. And no, just the way that those deals, those mega deals function is that you're supposed to be a positive surplus value in those first few seasons because you know in years 10, 11, 12, 13, he's probably not going to be worth $30 million, $28 million, whatever it is. So it kind of evens out over the long run, and then there's inflation that you deal with, present value money, all that stuff. Yep. Um, and that's where you get to points where you got a Miguel Cabrera where maybe at the beginning of that deal – he was worth that money. Now he's definitely not. Here with Bauer, you're not going to see that. He's effectively getting 
as you said, he's getting what he's worth on a one-year deal in both the first and second years of that contract. Right. So he's just getting paid for this peak value, this peak surplus value. So even if he was pretty great over those two seasons and he opts out in the third one, with the way he's aging, with the way the pitcher aging curve works, you would kind of expect him to naturally get a little bit less if he did choose a similar deal yeah. um, after that after that second year. And then it would kind of continue to decline from there. So we're just kind of seeing kind of a year-to-year basis of how the aging curve works in a way. Exactly. Uh, ironically, that's how he started out saying he was going he was going to do one-year contracts, right? And so yeah, this is effectively a two-year. It's pretty close to what he was saying he wanted. So he got it. And um, yep. and and just from the Dodgers' perspective, um, it's a little bit of a surprise because they're way over the luxury tax. Like, clearly they don't seem to care about that which yeah. is it's a little bit unusual though in this pandemic sort of an environment that that they would go that far above and, and that far on budget but they're looking for you know pitcher depth they're very smart about that now they've got you know ridiculous they've got seven legitimate starters and you know i guess they're figuring they're going to need it because you know they they want to win another world series and they've got you know in, innings to fill after a shortened year last year so you know got to give them credit for going for it it's a weird environment in which the Dodgers are spending all this money and they're not necessarily the bad guys here. Like mm-hmm. you would you wouldn't anticipate like you said in the pandemic year after they've already won their <laughs> World Series, they already have one of the best um, best teams in all of baseball if not still the best team in baseball before Bauer. Mm-hmm. And you say like why would they blow past the luxury tax to add a guy like this? Well, it's it's one to keep up with the Padres because they've been so active this offseason. The gap between them was really closed. I think the Dodgers still had the edge there, but it was a really the gap was tightened completely. And now they add Bauer and they kind of jump out ahead again. Mm-hmm. But also, it's just it's just nice to see something like this where a team says we're not happy with just one ring. We want to keep winning. We want to keep winning for the foreseeable future. And this is a team without too many long-term commitments. Um, not that this Bauer deal is a long-term contract either, but that's kind of the that's what they've shied away from in the past. Um, with guys like Machado and Harper, where they had some interest in bringing them back, but it was reportedly only on a short-term deal like this. So they clearly mm-hmm. have an idea in mind of, yeah, in the short term, we'll blow past this tax. This is our winning, this is our winning mode right now, our winning mm-hmm. contention window. Mm-hmm. We're going to push all our chips in here, even if it costs us a little extra. And you have to respect that to an extent. You, you see this these stats going out um, after this deal is signed about, oh, in 2020, Bauer, 2021, excuse me, Bauer's going to make more in that season alone than the Pirates are going to spend on their entire team. And it's like, yes, that's true. Don't use that as a knock on the Dodgers for spending on the money. Use it as a knock on the Pirates and some of these other teams for failing to do so, failing to invest in their their team. I would argue, though, that, you know, if I'm in a small market and I'm in a rebuilding mode, it doesn't make that much sense to spend that much, you know? Sure. I mean, you know, it's you want to spend later once you've got the core built and then you want to augment that core. And that's, you know, like the Royals did in 2014, 15, 16, somewhere in there. Maybe you know? Cleveland is a better comparison yeah. there then. Yeah. 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 Where obviously not a large market there either, but they, you know, they traded Francisco Lindor <laughs> um, and rather than sign him to a, any kind of contract. So. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's a whole debate there that's kind of outside the scope of this of this podcast, but for now, <laughs> we'll just say that Bauer signed this deal. It looks like right on the money, fair value according to our model, and mm-hmm. it makes the Dodgers a much better baseball team. Yeah. One final point on this is um, 
you know, it immediately sort of triggered some trade proposals on our site. Like, oh, they've got too many pitchers. Let's see if maybe they trade Price or Gonsolin. And so some buzz about that. But there was nothing, anything, never any indication from the Dodgers camp that that would be the case. I think they're just rolling with their seven starters. Exactly. I mean, there was a lot of speculation that night about Matt Chapman or some other, or Eugenio Suarez, another controllable third base type. It still just seems the most likely, especially if they're willing to blow past the luxury tax. It still just seems the most likely they come uh, to terms with Justin Turner one of these days. I'm surprised it's taken this long. I am too, because we're getting closer to spring training, so <laughs> they better they better work that out. Exactly. All right. Now let's head into a couple pretty interesting trades here. Um, we'll start with the one that just broke this week. That's the Royals acquiring Andrew Benintendi in this three-team deal with the Red Sox and the Mets. Really weird trade. Um, it's one that we can't really evaluate yet. Um, so the full trade here, as we know it so far, is Benintendi's heading to the Royals. Uh, he's got two years of team control left. We have his trade value at $4.6 million. To the Mets, outfield prospect Khalil Lee from the Royals for $9.3 million trade value. And then to the Red Sox, outfielder Franchi Cordero, $3.5 million. Right-handed pitcher Josh Winkowski, $0.3 million. The Mets had acquired him previously uh, in that Steven Matz trade. And as well as three players to be named later, two of them from the Royals, one from the Mets, I believe. Yeah. Yes, two from the Royals, one from the Mets. So... As we have it right now, oh, and also, uh, excuse me, $2.8 million in cash headed mm-hmm. to the Royals to help cover Ben and Denny's contract. So mm-hmm. as, as we have it now, the Royals gave up, already gave up, before accounting for their two players to be named later heading to the Red Sox. They've already given up $12.8 million in, in value between Cordero and Lee. And they're getting back Ben and Tendi at 4.6 and then $2.8 million in cash. So that's 7.6 million. So it's already a pretty big gap. It's already pretty fair to look at this deal and say, regardless of who those two players to be named later are, and especially if they're players of any value, um, the Kansas City overpaid here. As well, it's easy to say that right now it looks like a win for the Mets. You would have to expect their player to be named later to be pretty substantial because otherwise they're adding this prospect of $9.3 million in trade value in exchange for Winkowski, we had a 0.3. So there's a $9 million gap there. Yeah. Um, you expect that player to be named later from the Mets to be pretty significant, and I'd be pretty shocked if it wasn't. So this is a weird trade. I was kind of scratching my head the whole way it was unfolding. What are your thoughts? So you can't see me throwing up my hands, but I'm throwing up my hands. Because, uh, <laughs> like, there's so many unknowns here. Um, three PTBNLs, to your point, one of them may be significant. We We kind of think it would be. So, I mean, whenever we look at a trade, we always want to double check our values and say, okay, did we miss anything? Are we right? Um, you know, and from the Red Sox perspective, it looks fine. You know, um, looks like they're getting a, a fair deal uh, from what they gave up when they're going to get back, depending on the PTBNLs. Um, to your point, you know, the Royals overpaid, but that would only be true if we're right about Lee's value and double checking that. I mean, it's, he was a consensus 45 across the board from all the prospect evaluators, you know, the ones that we trust the most, um, Baseball American, Fangrass, I'll name them, but others as well. Like he was he was right in that area. So it's not like there was variance. I mean, he's got some issues. He still needs, we've got some swing and miss issues, possible swing change, according to Loggenhagen. But that wasn't enough to sort of downgrade his value. Nobody did that. So we felt, we felt like that was a solid 9.3. So that's one thing you could look at. The thing you could look at is maybe Benintendi is 
maybe we were too low on him. Um, but our model sort of says that's pretty much where he's at, given the salary he's making 6.6 this year. And he figures to get a raise on top of that next year, which would be his ARB3 year. He had this kind of weird contract in between there. So, you know, that's going to be at least $7 million. So if he, if he was on the open market right now, coming off the horrid sort of <laughs> last season or two that he had, would he get... 14 million for two years for, uh, you know, that's, that's his salary on top of that. They're giving up all this value. So they must be seeing like a potential investment candidate here for a buy low. I know he's lost some weight. That's maybe one reason why his sprint speed was going down. Maybe they think there's, and he's only 26. So he's young enough to say, you know, he's still not in his prime yet. So maybe they fi figure, you know, the 50 percentile sort of outcome in the range of outcomes is sort of conservative. Maybe they were going for the higher sort of, you know, maybe he's a two war player, or a three war player again, instead of a one war player like he like he's modeled to be, in which case, yeah, they would pay that price. That's the more likely scenario in my mind is that they sort of saw him as kind of the higher percentile bounce back candidate and paid more because that's where you can say, yeah, they paid a little bit more for him. Yeah, I it's it's such a head scratcher just because of the Benintendi part, and I agree. Like that's the part that you look at in this deal and say, if we're wrong, it's it's probably him that yeah. we are wrong about. But I don't think we are wrong either when you just look at all of the question marks that are there for yeah. Benintendi. I mean, his his bat disappeared in these last couple of years. He he was had a 100 OPS plus in 2019, and then 52 bad played appearances in 2020 had some injuries as well which are a concern going forward the yep. defense has taken a massive step back his sprint speed yep. has taken a massive step back so what you're left with is a guy who doesn't have all that much power playing a corner a, yes yeah, in, he, a, in a corner <laughs> below average corner defender. yeah right without much power no no above average speed like probably average ish yep. i guess he's a a 10 or 15 stolen base type guy maybe but then that's with his sprint speed declining so maybe you're even getting less than that yeah and decent contact rates so you're so you've got a guy who's he's he's on base percentage and that's kind of all he, he's on base percentage and upside yeah. i mean you compare yeah. him to <laughs> this is actually a funny comparison um by fangraph's depth charts here he is projected for the same wrc plus 102 as one Robert Grossman. <laughs> so you figure Robbie Grossman just got two years, 10 million on the open market. And you say, okay, Robbie Grossman's a 31 year old. He doesn't have anywhere near the upside of Benintendi. That's that's clear. Um, but Benintendi is making, as you say, probably six million this year, at least seven million next year. So two years, 13, 14 million, something in mm -hmm. that range. Mm -hmm. um, that's if he doesn't significantly bounce back. So let, let's call it 214 there. Mm -hmm. So you're paying Benintendi $4 million more and a significant prospect and an interesting major league outfielder in Franchi Cordero. Yeah. That's the price difference between him and Robbie Grossman for you're paying that much just to get his potential upside. So yeah. I don't, I don't see that at all. I mean, yeah, I I've, I'll admit to have, to being low on Benintendi for basically his entire career. I never really <laughs> saw too much more than a Ryan Sweeney, Robbie Grossman type mm -hmm. here. Um, and, and a lot of his power felt like it was, it was juiced ball or Boston or whatever. Mm -hmm. he was, he's never been a power threat. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just so hard to be successful as a corner outfielder in today's game if you're not a power threat or 
fantastic in some other area of the game, and he's just really not. So I, I have a really tough time seeing this for Kansas City. I have a really tough time seeing their entire offseason, given the types of players that they've added with Mike Miner, Carlos Santana. Uh, they just and, and letting Michael Franco go when it seemed like he had a pretty solid 2020, and that's the kind of upside you do hang on to. I don't, I don't know. Kansas City makes this one weird. It reminds me of some of these other trades where we've gone, okay, maybe we're a little off on this guy, maybe we're a little off on this guy. If we do make these adjustments, what does it look like? Oh, it still looks like an overpay. So yeah. I, I'm pretty comfortable calling it an overpay for Kansas City. Yeah, and Kansas City has your point i mean they signed minor they signed carlos santana i mean they're going for it they're sort of think i don't know why but <laughs> they're like we're not a rebuilding team we're a contender and they're sort of like spending maybe they've got the budget to do it's it's not insignificant that there's a new owner there so maybe he was like okay i want to win you know i'm a new I'm, you know so maybe he's giving them the green light a little bit but they they do march th to their own drummer they refuse to trade with merrifield they stick to their sort of guns you know and and uh, you know okay fine they also have a tendency to to sort of buy low you know in previous years when they were rebuilding they would sign a veteran and flip them at the deadline so that's which is fine um so maybe this is a buy low turnaround thing that they're thinking as well as if it turns around they're a contender I don't know that, it, but it's also telling to me that the Red Sox traded him when they, when they, when he was at his lowest value, um, and you know they just, you know, signed Marwin Gonzalez, so they wanted to free up some money before they hit the CBT limit, you know. So, um, and maybe this was the only taker they could find, but they did they got they got a solid deal out of him, depending on who these PT NLs are, um, and um, we can't evaluate it other than that. We can't. I don't think we can evaluate the Mets side until we know who that PTBNL yeah. is coming from them. So that's yeah. an open question. Yeah. Maybe this is a uh, part owner, Pat Mahomes upset that he just lost the Super Bowl and saying, Hey, we got to go all in here. We, we need, we need this team. to yeah. my team." Can. There you go. That's a theory. <laughs> yeah, uh, <right. laughs> I, I will say, I will say that I'm not trying to contradict myself here. I know I mentioned teams like the, like Cleveland and like the Pirates who aren't spending much money. And then I just said, oh, what's Kansas City doing out here spending money on Mike Miner and Carlos Santana? I, I think in a vacuum, if, if the choice is spend money or don't spend money, I think it's good that they are getting those guys and that they could yeah. at some point down the road flip them for talent, yeah. even if they don't uh, find contention within the next year or two. I don't mm -hmm. know if those two are the guys that would have specifically targeted for that type of move. Uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a whole laundry list of other guys that would have gone to first, but you know, it takes two to tango. Maybe other guys didn't have interest. Um, and even even with that in mind, I'm, I'm on board with those free agent type signings. I'm not so on board with moving significant future assets like Lee and Cordero for kind of a speculative current asset here in Benintendi. So. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So, you know, <clears throat> I think we're being logical like most people would, but sometimes, you know. GMs don't do the logical thing, or they have their own motivations to, or their owner really wants them to. So um, that's possibly the case here. Um, yep. One more point on the, on the Winkowski. Winkowski was a Rule 5 guy, and no one picked him, like, two months ago, right? So now he's traded twice. Like, what the heck happened there? Like, uh, you know, he was a throw-in in Steven Matt's deal, but, you know, is he somebody, the Red, the Red Sox, is there a turnaround there that, you know, I'm hearing a little bit, like, you know, he started to appear on the back end of, of the Mets um, Baseball America Top 30. So, because, you know, apparently he 
you tweaked something. So which bumped up his value from like 0 0.1 to 0 0.3, but he's still <laughs> a throw-in, you know? So he's yeah. not like this major prospect. I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah. I'm not seeing anything on baseball reference here about him uh, playing anywhere overseas this offseason or anything yeah. like that that would have ticked up his value since um, since the Rule 5 draft and instructs were before the Rule 5 draft, so it's not like he was blowing up there. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know either. I, like you say, like even if he is um, a, a more notable prospect now than it is then, it's he's not jumping from 0 0.1 to... Yeah. Five million to make up the difference in this trade, or something like yeah. that. It's it's pretty clear from both this trade and the other one, he's still valued low, and it's just maybe, hey, that, that guy's a little interesting. Why not add him in as a little sweetener, something like that. Exactly. So we'll see, and it may be a couple of months before we find out who these PT Manels are, because um, I saw a report today that um, the agreement was, you know, there's and as sometimes is the case, there's like, okay, well, here's this sort of list of players in this particular mm -hmm. tier. And we'll see how they do after like a month of spring training and then pick two of them, you know, and so um, and that's probably from the Mets side as well. So um, it'll, we won't know. Probably I'm a little surprised. Until... Yeah, I'm a little surprised we haven't seen more of those type of deals with uh, with the cancellation of last season of the last minor league season. So some yeah. of these guys, you either just have limited alternate site video or instructs video and that's kind of it. So I'm surprised we haven't seen more of this type, and maybe we do see more of this um, in the last couple of weeks of the offseason here in spring training, whatever, where they're going to wait and see how guys look in spring, look in the first month or two of the minor league season, uh, because there is a time limit for choosing these player to be named later, players to be named later. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, since we are we sort haven't of... to this point. Exactly, since we're so getting closer and closer, you might as well you know, gather more information, mm -hmm. you know, take advantage of that situation. So, yeah, that's a good point. One one final note here that's a little funny in that with spring training kind of around the corner here, Benintendi in, in and I guess Cordero as well, um, they were probably very much planning on Benintendi going to Florida for spring training and Cordero coming out here to Arizona, and now they need to find accommodations at the last minute. So <laughs> <like> guys. <laughs> yeah, say la vie. <clears throat> All right, next trade here. Uh, this one has bigger names for sure, but uh, it's 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 a bit of a salary dump trade on both sides. This one's was really came out of left field, and no weird Chris Davis pun intended there. Uh, <laughs> so this is the, the Rangers and the A's. Uh, the Rangers uh, sent Elvis Andrews, their longtime shortstop fan favorite, along with kind of a post-catching prospect backup type guy in Aramis Garcia as well as $13.5 in cash to the Athletics. So we had Elvis Andrews at negative $16.8 in trade value, Garcia at positive $1.2, and then $13.5 in cash. That's going to the Athletics. Athletics, in turn, are sending DH Chris Davis, who we had at negative $15.3 catcher Jonah Heim, $6.6 .6 and right-handed pitcher Dane Acker, $0.5 million. So what this, what this amounts to is the A's are flipping a year of Chris Davis, uh, who has been struggling the past two seasons here, um, and he's just a pure DH. He really, he, he's not yeah. pretty out there in the outfield. The arm isn't great. The range isn't great. He's he got injured the last time he went out there. He, you don't want to start him in the outfield unless you no. have to. Mm -hmm. So it's a, an expensive year of Chris Davis that they're offloading, getting off the books, and the price that they're paying to do that is a pretty solid backup catcher in Jonah Heim with some uh, kind of a late bloomer type, as well as an interesting. Uh, mid-round pick in Dane Acker. 
So they've given up those two guys in addition to Davis, and they're getting back Elvis Andrews, where he'll be under control for two years at least, and it's it's likely to only be two years because his contract is pretty expensive. I don't think they want to let that third year vest. Yeah. Um, and he, he feels a better need for them. They really did not have a middle infield before this trade. Now they at least have a warm body at shortstop, if not more. And then as well as kind of a a replacement to Heim potentially in Garcia, if not, he's just some catcher depth. And then the 13 and a half million really offsets, um, offsets the larger contract that Andrews has and gives the team some financial flexibility to make a couple more minor moves here as the off season winds down. So this is a move purely funneled by money. And it's just kind of an interesting side effect here that it's a couple of fan favorites swapping teams within the same division. Yeah, so both teams got their needs met. I just wanted to start off by saying, when this trade was first reported, there was quite a bit of confusion around Elvis Andrus's contract, specifically his third. He has an option um, that you know, that you mentioned would vest, um, you know, for third for 2023. But according to Cot's contracts, which we generally trust as a source, you know, the way it was worded suggested that that option would automatically kick in if he were traded. So then. That changed the whole valuation to say, oh, actually, he's even more negative because he's got a whole third, you know, year coming, and not not just two years of him, but three years of him, and which would have made the deal much worse for the A's. Um, and you know, even Ken Rosenthal first reported that, and then he sort of backtracked it. I wanted to check for myself, so I contacted somebody I know at one of these teams who said, no, it's 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 the way it we, you know, it, it has to vest. So that was. Okay, so that clarified that, and I think it made a much more fair deal because that deal would not have made as much sense if there was a third year with Andrews. But there was confusion on our site because we had this, we had to sort of post it, you know, two different ways depending on how the wind was blowing there. But we finally clarified it, so thanks for sticking in with us. And it looks like a reasonable deal, I think, for you know both sides kind of get what they need. Um, it's an unusual deal because bad contract for bad contract, you don't see it all that often. Um, in this case, it it just sort of you know, it made more sense from a roster point of view. Um, you know, the one sort of decent positive asset going here was Jonah Heim, as you mentioned, from Oakland to Texas. Um, and he's actually, despite the fact that he's been sort of playing for a long time, he's actually still not that old. Um, so he's still got some good years ahead of him, I think. And, you know, and maybe Texas sees him as, you know, potential sort of, you know, if not starter, then at least maybe more of a platoon sort of guy, or maybe somebody who can share time with, um, you know, their their um, <clears throat> you know their future catcher. So, um, I think they got a good piece there. I think they got what they needed with him. The A's got their shortstop, and they freed up some money so that they could, send, you know, they uh, got some money to play with now because they didn't have any budget before. So it all makes sense from a, a budget point of view. This one's mostly about money. Yeah. Heim is a much more all-around catching option than what they previously had in the organization. Uh, they had Sam Huff, who was really bat-first, kind of a work in progress with the glove. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, David Garcia, who <laughs> another bit of confusion to this deal was whether the catcher heading to Oakland was <laughs> Ramos Garcia, who was who was a 28-year-old, uh, former uh -huh. Giants back uh, backup. Or if it was David Garcia, who's a 21-year-old switch-hitting, interesting lower minors prospect, and so ended up being uh, Aramis Garcia, which makes a little bit more sense on both ends here. Yeah. Um, but Haim is kind of more of a complete player for uh, for the Rangers, as I mentioned. Yeah. Late bloomer, uh, kind of coming into his own, both with the bat and with the glove, uh, but getting really solid reviews behind the plate, both from pitchers, from scouts, all of that. So he's he's the prize of the deal 
for the Rangers. And then, as you mentioned, the prize of the deal for the A's is definitely Elvis Andrews. I mean, he had a pretty rough 2020. Before that, he was a pretty consistent player. He had one big power spike here. I don't think anyone's expecting that from him again. They just kind of want a consistent glove, a consistent bottom-of-the-order type bat that won't uh, won't disappoint them too much and will kind of keep the position warm until they can find a, a long-term solution for the spot. Um, what's interesting here, as kind of an aside, is the money allocation aspect of it. So mm-hmm. it seems as if the team is treating this as applying the $13.5 million to 2021 books. And so that would mean that they're clearing the entirety of Davis's contract and getting most of Andrus's paid so that they now have this, uh, this kind of spot in their budget that they can spend, that they have some flexibility. Whereas when you see a deal like this and you say, oh, Andrews is making significant money in 2021 and 2022, you would kind of assume naturally that the cash would be split up over the two years. Um, But it kind of goes to this idea that in Major League Baseball, for some reason that I don't think I'll understand unless I ascend to that level of the front office, um, for some reason, cash isn't really flexible year to year in the budget. It's not if, oh, if our ownership gives us an $80 million budget this year and we only spend $70 million, then, oh, next year we can spend that extra $10 million. It's not treated in that fashion. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just an interesting little aside to this deal. Yeah, it's a good point, and I totally hear you. Um, and yet I saw some reports from Texas Beat Writers that said they are you know, setting some in 2021 and some in 2022. So I'm not totally clear. And there have been previous deals where a team would send X amount per year. I mean, like the Rays, I mean, sorry, the Marlins to to New York for the Giancarlo Stanton deal was like, okay, we're going to cover X amount, you know, per year, per year. The Rays sending uh, in the Evan Longoria trade many years ago uh, did the same thing year by year. So it has been known to happen. I know to your point, though, it's a very sort of weird, sketchy area that I'm not quite sure how it all works out from a budget standpoint. and we'll see. I, I, I get the sense that the A's are spending a little bit, but they're not like suddenly going crazy. So as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so I don't know. But I think also there may be sort of a case where um, they figure maybe life will be a little bit more back to normal in 2022. So if we have to eat Andrus's contract, then we'll kick that can down the road. <laughs> We're tight right now. Yeah. So let's spend what we can now. <laughs> yeah, it seems like this team is kind of seeing its contention window close a lot sooner than it should have between the pandemic, between um, what the pandemic has done to their stadium prospects and kind of pushing, (laughs) kicking that can down the road even farther. Um, So they were, there was a point where you could see a future where they keep Simeon and then look into locking up Chapman and Olsen. And then they're, they're a powerhouse for the next few years. Instead, what you're kind of seeing is they won the division in 2020, and now they're kind of scrambling to put together a similarly competitive roster in 2021, and you can only see it getting harder and harder as the years yeah. go on. Chapman and Olsen get more expensive. <laughs> Canna becomes a free agent. Yeah. Um, so they're they're kind of, they're doing what they can. They're getting creative, and it's, yeah, they're doing what they can. Um, one other yeah. note on the Rangers side of this is that I did see, Uh, I forget who it was. One of the Rangers beat reporters noted that uh, Chris Davis might be asked to play a little first base, uh, at least try out the position in spring training, see how he feels to it. Um, That would be a a pretty solid solution for that team since they already have a lot of kind of bad glove (laughs) 
um, DH types that they probably want to rotate through that position rather than just having the one full-time DH in Davis. I don't know how that would go. <laughs> I'm, I've never seen him play infield. I, I can't picture it. It's weird. I, I got a mental block there. <laughs> I know, um, I know. Well, if they, they did... can make it work, that's, that's, that's an advantage for them. Yeah, remember they traded for Nate Lowe earlier in the offseason, so I would figure that he's going to be the regular third baseman or maybe just, you know, if they try uh, Davis baseman. there. First baseman, yeah. Um, maybe they would try Davis as a backup or injury replacement or something like that just in case. Yeah. I think they I think they are, are done with Guzman. <laughs> that old experiment yeah. has not really worked out, unfortunately, so I think they're trying other things for that, that other slot. Yeah, and... Um... It's worth noting that Chris Davis used to absolutely destroy the Rangers, especially in their yeah. uh, in their old ballpark. Uh, it remains to be seen how exactly he'll perform in the new ballpark. It also is questionable whether that's a a skill or just a little little small sample size luck there. But he, oh boy, did he kill them in that old ballpark. <laughs> You remember the old, uh, there was a Wikipedia entry at one point, and when you looked up the <laughs> yes. Rangers, and it said owner, Chris Davis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so maybe they're just sick of facing the guy, and they decided, yeah. hey, well, we need to do what it takes to get this guy on our side. Yeah, that crossed my mind, too. So, yeah, maybe there's a little t- touch of upside there that he can find it again there in Texas. Because, you know, maybe the weather is a factor. You know, he doesn't have to hit in the marine layer of Oakland anymore, so mm-hmm. maybe it'll get more. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have one more trade. It's a fairly minor one, but it's at least a little interesting for both sides involved here. Uh, so the Angels acquired right-handed pitcher Aaron Sleegers from the Rays in exchange for a player to be named later or cash. Um, Sleegers was, has been kind of a swing man for most of his career. Uh, found a decent little home in the in the Rays' bullpen last season. I believe he was used throughout the playoffs. Um, really tall, 6'10". <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, former, former Twins prospect. And so the Angels here are just adding kind of a depth arm, and the Rays are kind of continuing to deal, as they always do, with this uh, with this roster crunch. Yeah, they had a 40-man slot um, that needed to be open, so he was the uh, he was the solution moving him. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be interesting because they're still stuck at 40, and and they may need to find another pitcher or two. This one was moved for Chris Archer, which is another story, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know they may they may not be done yet, which means there may be more forty man moves to come, and maybe we'll have to see after spring training and how things shake out there. But they're tight. A lot of teams are tight, um, but it's interesting, especially with the Rays, because they've got a lot of young arms that need to get some playing time in. They need to create some room for. So that was part of the motivation behind Snell and not resigning Morton. So they're revamping their whole sort of you know. I don't want to say rotation because they have, of course, their own sort of way of doing things, bulk arms. They need more bulk, bulk arms, and so we'll see where they go with it. But this is interesting, I think, from that perspective. Yeah, this is pretty minor trade here. Sleekers, we had a 0.4 million in, uh, in trade value there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got the roster risk. He doesn't really have much of a track record. Last season was his first productive season, and it was, it was a 346 ERA, 304 FIP in 26 innings. That's less than a strikeout per inning it's nothing to freak out about he wasn't this dominant reliever he was just a solid middle relief long relief type um so not not a whole lot of value there uh he's a depth arm really for the angels who we've known over the years that they have trouble with pitching so they're kind of getting everything they can and for the rays it's it's a pretty useful arm um in a team that doesn't have 
necessarily a traditional pitching staff. They never really have a traditional pitching staff, but especially this year after losing Morton and Snell, like you said. And so they're kind of relying on a lot of a lot of their pitchers being versatile and being able to throw multiple innings. And so now they, they lose one of those guys. Um, so interesting from their perspective. I'm interested to see what other moves they might make, as you mentioned. Um, but this is just kind of the first of many dominoes to fall on that roster. Yeah. And one last point. We, we kind of said on a previous podcast that, you know, the Angels, you know, have been stuck in sort of this mediocre land of pitching for a while, you know, with the Cahills and the Harveys and the, you know, Tehran. Um, yeah, Tehran. I mean, like, and you thought, well, new GM this year, he's going to do it. He's going to get them an ace. <laughs> and what does he do? You know, he got Cobb. He got, you know, it's <laughs> Quintana. <laughs> it's Leaguers. Okay. It's more meh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to fault them too much for Bauer. Um, just considering what contract he ended up with, where that would have put their budget, um, the conflicts that was there with Mickey Calloway before the Calloway yeah. situation happened yeah. that we don't need to discuss. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to fault them for choosing not to pursue Bauer. Maybe they did pursue him and just fell short. I don't know. Um, mm. But I think there were plenty of other names on And there there are still a couple names, maybe a Taiwan Walker, a Jake Odorizzi. Those are better than the Cahill-Harvey names, not by a ton, but they're better. Um, if there was a name that surprised me that they didn't pursue more heavily, it's probably Sugano. <clears throat> yeah. I think he might have been a good fit, but we, we basically saw the entirety of Major League Baseball be a little lukewarm on Sugano, or at least just unwilling to match what uh, what his own team was willing to offer him. So, again, I'm not sure how much stock I'm going to put into that. It could have just been a situational thing. I don't think... I don't think the Angels are looking at their rotation right now, and I don't think Perry Manasian is saying, yeah, this is a strength. I did it. I fixed the rotation. I, <laughs> all these other, DePoto and, and all these other GMs before me, they couldn't do it, but I did. I fixed the Angels' rotation. Look at it. It has Alex Cobb in it. How can you not love it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's kind of working with what he's got, and if you would ask him right now in the next two, three years what his priority is for the team, it's definitely starting pitching you know but then you have to wonder like couldn't he have gone after snell or darvish a little bit more aggressively you know and outbid the padres those were not crazy deals you know but maybe he just doesn't want to you know maybe would have had to require moving adele or marsh or maybe this wasn't a fit for the other teams but you have to wonder did they give those a go you know yeah (laughs) Pure speculation here, but yeah. maybe uh, maybe Adele's struggles last year played a role in that. Maybe if yeah. he comes onto the scene and he looks like he's major league ready, you say, okay, we got Trout and Adele for the next six years, at least seven years. And then between Marsh and Adams, we only need one of them to click for that other spot. So now I'm mm-hmm. suddenly willing to move one of them in a trade for one of those guys. Um, but because Adele struggled, you maybe say like, oh, we're a little more uncertain about our long-term outfield picture. We need to hold on to all three guys or something along those <clears> lines. <throat> I don't know. Like I said, pure speculation. Yeah, it is. I don't want to go too far. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> all right. So there's our trades. Now we have a handful of free agent signings here. Let's start with the only other significant one um, outside of Bauer. And it's the Braves bringing back Marcelo Zuna. And I think this is really interesting. Um because I, I think a lot of people had them as a natural landing spot for Ozuna if the NL got the DH. 
but by all reports and the way things are looking right now, they're not going to have the DH in 2021 at least. Um, I'd still put a lot of money on it being back in 2022, but at least for 2021, they don't have it. And Ozuna's a, a pretty rough defender out in left field. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the the low lights of him mm-hmm. goofing around out there by the wall. Um, but they they felt comfortable enough with his defense at least for the one year, or maybe it was more of a case of they trusted his bat enough uh, to compensate that they went ahead and signed him to a four-year, $65 million guarantee. There's an option in the fifth year worth another $15 million. So, uh, actually, excuse me, the guarantee is $66 million because of the $1 million buyout. So $466, fifth-year option, makes it five years, $80 million tops. Uh, he'll be their left fielder, presumably, for this season. And mm-hmm. if you ask them, they'd probably say, hopefully he'll be our DH after that. <clears throat> and he mm-hmm. was a phenomenal hitter in 2020, so... I, I think he was one of the more curious free agents um, as this guy without a position and with not too much of a market if there wasn't a DH. So it's interesting to see him get such a significant deal. Yeah. So first off, <clears throat> um, in, according to our model, um, four years is $68 million. With a fifth year would be declined because at that point he would be declining so much well into his 30s that it would have been negative if they just picked that up so it wouldn't be a five-year 80 million deal it would be a four-year 66 we have him at 68 for those four years so that's a fair deal a tiny bit over so um i think you know it's another sort of opportunity to say the market always values offense more than defense and jbj is still sitting out there unsigned we'll talk about a couple of defensive guys in a moment but Offense always plays more in the market than defense does. And so that's my sort of first sort of in reaction to this. It's a heck of a bat. And he had a great season last year with the bat. So they'll excuse the, I mean, obviously he's playing a, a, a low value defensive position in left field and they're hiding him there for a year until such times he becomes a DH. I agree with you. It'll probably be kicking in in 2022. Um, so, so they're basically getting him, hiding him in left field for one year. And then he'll be DH the next three years after that and still be and, – and at that point, since he doesn't play the field, you could argue maybe he's going to be another Nelson Cruz type and just, you know, rake. So, yeah. okay, I can see it. He's also been a weird hitter throughout his career. He's had a lot of ups and downs, and he's been – He's been elite by some metrics, but having trouble lifting the ball. And it, it's been a weird offensive profile kind of zigzagging all over the place. And then it finally culminated in essentially him being the best offensive player of 2020. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that progresses going forward. And I'm I'm a little surprised to see them buy in so much. But um, if he is a DH, then the, the op- you don't need as much from him on offense to make up for the poor defense. So... Um, maybe that gets resolved a little bit down the line. I also don't know if this was necessarily a factor. I don't, I don't think it was a factor in like the difference between, oh, we don't have interest in him, and, oh, wait, let's go five years, $80 million. Um, But it is worth pointing out, I believe, that um, the Braves have a pretty solid defensive outfield outside of him, yeah. and they have some options to replace him late in games if they have a lead and want to get a true <laughs> defensive left fielder out there. Um, they got Acuna pretty solidly in either right field or center field. He's at least an average glove, if not above average. In Ciarte, glove declining a little bit, but he's more of a bench piece now. He's still a solid glove. And then Christian Pache, who was considered one of the best defensive prospects in baseball. Um, So between those three guys, you can put together a pretty solid defensive outfield for innings 7, 8, 9 if you're winning a game 
five to three or whatever. Yeah. Um, so maybe they maybe they use that to kind of mitigate some of the negative defensive value. It, it, exactly. I was just going to make that point too. I think they believe so much in in Pache, especially in his defense. Like he can, he's a gazelle out there. I think he's going to like, you know, run into the left field gap and cover a lot of those things that Ozuna wouldn't get mm-hmm. through. So I, I think that's another sort of thought in the back of their mind. Yeah, definitely. Okay, next signing. Like I said, that was the last real big one. And dump, jumps off a cliff here. <laughs> so, <laughs> a former Braves outfielder, Adam Duvall, <laughs> signing with the Marlins for much less than five years and eighty million. Uh, he signed for, uh, I believe it's two years, five million. I'm having trouble finding the yeah. actual dollar value in this article. <laughs> yeah, two years, five five million guaranteed. Um, so that'll be two million dollars in 2021. And then a mutual option for 2022, uh, as we've mentioned before, those very rarely get picked up by both sides. Uh, but that mutual option does have a $3 million buyout or $7 million total for 2022 if they do exercise it. Um, he's, for his career, been kind of a platoon, uh, right-handed bat, crushes lefties. He has some power. He's a pretty solid left field uh, defender. So, I mean, not a bad addition for a young Marlins club that had some room in the outfield for an upgrade, uh, but also not necessarily earth-shattering. Nope. And, you know, valuation-wise, we have him right at $5 million for a year. So we're assuming that the second year would not be picked up if all things go according to plan, which, of course, they never do. But if they did, um, they'd be on the hook for a total of $5 million for that one year, which is fair. Now, when he was first non-tendered by the Braves, a lot of people were surprised Um but um, you know he was he was figuring to to earn more than that. Um, he was also out of options, which doesn't matter now as a free agent. But at that point, at that point, you're like, you know, the Braves were thinking, yeah, he's a little overpaid, and 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 that sort of squares with our model too. He's worth five million for a year. Um, you know, the Marlins have been sort of just sniffing around a little bit, not doing yeah. anything major. Um, you get the sense that they're playing it conservatively, either for budget reasons or because they want to give a lot more playing time because they've got a, a good young core coming. So probably some combination thereof. And he's just sort of an extra piece that's a veteran who can help with uh, some offense. Yeah, as you've pointed out in the past, he's short side platoon guy. And those guys yeah. just don't get paid as well. He, he's not getting paid like Schwarber or Peterson. Yeah. Um, and to the Marlins, a lot of the projections came out this week, uh, Fangraphs, Pakoda, and they pretty much all have the Marlins as the last place in, in the NL East, which is got to be disappointing for a team that just made the playoffs and has some exciting young talent. Uh, but there's the whole rest of that division just got a lot better this off season, except for the Phillies who kind of treaded water as we've discussed. Um, but the Marlins have also kind of been treading water. So that's not a great spot for them. Um, they still do have some long-term talent to be excited about, but I wouldn't necessarily expect a return to the playoffs in 2021. Yeah, I mean, there may, may have been some, some luck there. <laughs> and it was a short season. It was yeah. a weird season. Who knows? At a, you know, if a normal season comes across you know, 162 games, it's a tough division. I can see why there's um, not as much optimism. But I also sort of have a soft spot for the Marlins, and I like to see a young team sort of yeah. you know, overplay their expectations. So good luck to them. Yeah. Last season they made the playoffs because they essentially kept themselves around 500 playing guys like Pat Venditti and whoever else, both Josh Smiths, whoever whoever they can find <laughs> off the waiver wire Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the year when their whole team basically went down due to COVID. Um, that's, that's why they made the playoffs because they had that 
pretty lucky stretch there where they were running basically a double A or triple A team and still <laughs> hovering around 500. You can't count on something like that happening again, having that type of luck again, especially over 162 games. So, no, probably I, I agree. It's it's the same reason you expect the Astros to not be under 500 in 2021, even though their roster has gotten a little worse. It's because over 162 games, things like this will even out. And I agree with you as much as I like the Marlins and always going to be rooting for them a little bit, especially under this new regime that seems to know what they're doing. <laughs> um, yeah. As much as I want to root for them, they're, they're not my pick in that division by any means. Yeah, although one last point, they've got a heck of a young pitching staff. I want to see more right. Sixto. You know, they've got some good arms there, so um, that's going to be that's their strength. Yeah. Next one, we've we talked about this last week. We alluded to this uh, when Adam Wainwright resigned with the Cardinals, and I believe I said something along the lines of, "I don't really check how the values turned out uh, before we record these episodes. I like to be a little surprised." And I predicted that Wainwright was an overpay, and he was. And I'm going to predict the same thing here, that the Cardinals re-signing Yadier Molina for a year and $9 million, that's got to be an overpay, right? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, uh, they, they, he's a deity in St. Louis, so maybe yeah. they have to pay a, a, a god tax for him. But yikes. <laughs> I mean, no such like, thing as a bad one-year deal. <laughs> But this gets close. <laughs> you know, our our average sort of model, you know, assumes kind of like normal injury risk. And he's going to be 38. And he is 38, actually, I think. Might even be 39 later this year. So the injury risk, I mentioned this last year with Wainwright. Like, at a certain point, it just drops off because you just, you know, don't see too many guys this old playing. So, like, even if you say, okay, well, let's skew that a little higher because he's generally healthy. At the the top you get his value is six point seven. Like why they're paying him nine, I'm not sure. Fan favorite, marketable, maybe pitching staff, sort of maybe those other sort of intangibles. Working with pitching staff, being a team leader, clubhouse guy, I, all those things maybe they appreciate in value as we talked about before. So I figure that's probably the cushion there. I was pretty shocked to see that there were a lot of other teams reportedly at least with some level of interest in him. I mean, this is a guy that. He's well into his decline. Two straight years of a below-average bat. The defense, I mean, it still gets gets <laughs> rave reviews from the pitching staff and from the team, the coaches, and everything. But it's it's clearly declining as well. You can't stay the best defensive catcher in baseball at age 38, 39. That just doesn't yeah. happen ever. Yeah. But I mean, at this point, you're looking at a similar profile to Austin Hedges, I guess. I mean, I guess Molina's bat's a little bit better, but are you really paying Austin Hedges, who's significantly younger and probably still has a little bit of upside there? Are you are you paying him a year and nine million? Because I don't no. think you are. No, <laughs> and our model not. doesn't think you are either. No. Nope. So uh, he just he's <laughs> he gets paid because he's Yadier Molina. Yeah. And people like him because he's Yadier Molina, not necessarily because he produces a ton on the field at this point in his career. So I don't know. I mean. Yeah, and the, the Cardinals paid what they, what I guess they had to to get their two guys back, um, and you know if you're a Cardinals fan, you're not complaining for a minute about it because they just traded for Nolan Arenado as well. So you're not even saying that oh you should have spent this money on Colton Wong or whoever. You're you're happy, but yeah. from a value standpoint, and obviously we are baseball trade values. Neither of those two guys are going to get traded. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, 
but it, it's an overpay. It is. It, no matter how you slice it, it's an overpay. So they've got a little bit of a sentimental streak in St. In St. Louis, and he's a future Hall of Famer, and they want him to stay a Cardinal, so they overpaid for a few reasons. So whatever. <clears throat> okay, the Giants signed Jake McGee. Uh, free yeah. agent reliever signed him to a two-year, seven million dollar deal. He was—he's as big of a testament to the Dodgers' pitching machine as you can as you can come up with here. He was pretty awful for the Rockies. He was part of their huge hundred million dollar bullpen or whatever it was. Uh, that big run of relievers signings that they made with Wade Davis and all these mm-hmm. other uh, Cody mm-hmm. Allen and, and it just mm-hmm. fell apart in their face. Uh, and he was pretty bad there. He got cut loose by them. Dodgers picked him up early in last season, and everyone's thinking, oh, God, are they going to do it again? And, yes, they did it again. He was very, <laughs> very successful for the Dodgers, um, and now he turns it into a two-year, $7 million deal with the Giants. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think I think it's a fair deal. We have his fair value at 6.4. They paid seven for those two years, so it's close enough. You know, and then, you know, if he's on the upswing, you could argue that, okay, well, the Dodgers turned him around. And so some of the projection bakes in some of his lack of success previous to that, right? So if you just sort of look at the trend, then he's probably worth at least $7 million. Assuming that trend holds and the Giants, you know, do the same magic that uh, the Dodgers did with him, probably something about his pitch mix. And I'm not sure what else they do. I'm not an expert on that. But um, I think it's a smart signing. You know, so the Giants, they're, you know, they're not the Padres or Dodgers, but they're sneaky. They're yeah. also not the Rockies, yeah. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> each year goes by and you start to think, oh, they're rebuilding, but they're, they're sneaking up a little bit more. But each Bart's year. getting a little closer. Ramos, yep. Luciano, they're getting that young talent up there. They're finding some of these older major league pieces, the Yastrzemski, Dickerson, mm-hmm. um, Donovan Solano types that can mm-hmm. provide some value for them and potentially trade value down the road if they decide to take that approach. Mm-hmm. Giants fans should be happy with the direction their team is pointing. I mean, you can quibble with wanting them to make a big move either last offseason, this offseason, wherever, uh, pick up a, a Bryce Harper or a trade for a Lindor or a Bryant and extend them or sign a Bauer or whatever. You can argue that they should have done that with the kind of money that they have. But outside of that, you have to like the direction they're going. Yeah, you. Can, I think they'll spend bigger money next year. Um, yeah. This is Brandon Crawford's last year. Same with Brandon Bell. And Brandon Belt, right? So you know the shortstop market's coming up big next year, so they'll be in that market. They'll be they'll be spenders, you know, and, and they'll have some. They've got a wave of young talent coming that's still a little bit farther away, um, but there's some real talent there. So and it's it felt like it's it, it's never a hard rebuild, you know. It's not like they sank to terribleness, you know. It's it's not a pirates rebuild, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's you know they were sort of treading water and finding some sneaky guys, and so you know even sort of maybe wild card ish there a little bit so it's like you know that's you got to credit to them you know and they're still rebuilding at the same time so um they're they're kind of threading the needle there so good for them yeah one more point i'll add here um obviously the difference between our 6.4 million and the 7 million is insignificant to the point where we call it yeah that's that's about right there's enough rounding errors in there that's yeah. well within our margin of error but one point i want to make there is that we don't necessarily account for uh, market scarcity as the offseason goes on. So there really weren't any other left-handed relievers on the market that are clear major league players. Huh. That's uh, a good point. Brad Hand is off the market. Aaron Loop is off the market. Those were really the 
two biggest ones, uh, Sean Doolittle also off the market. Um, he's a tier below Jake McGee, but he's also a major league caliber player. <clears throat> uh, so there could be a kind of a scarcity tax here. Yeah. Again, the gap between 6.4 and 7 isn't that huge. And if, and if we did add a, a, a factor for that, it would probably bump his value to 6.5 or 6.6 <laughs> or something else minor along those lines. But I think that's just worth mentioning. It, yeah, it's close enough. And, you you know, there might have been a few bidders on there. And JD just wanted to win the bid. So that's it's mm-hmm. not even an overpay, to your point. It's a rounding error. Okay, Tigers re-signed Jonathan Scope, one year, four and a half million dollars. What's going on here with Jonathan Scope? We've talked a lot about the second base market and how second basemen just don't get paid anymore. Yeah. But here he is. He earned six point one million dollars last offseason from the Tigers. Earns four and a half this year, so he loses one point six million dollars even though he had a very productive twenty twenty seasons. Um Statcast didn't love him, but he slashed two seventy eight, three twenty four, four seventy five, eight homers. That's a pretty solid season for them. I was surprised they didn't trade him and I'm a little surprised he gets less money here. Obviously the aging curve factors in there as well as Statcast, um and some of his exit velocity, hard hit rate, stuff like that. But it, it seems like Scoop just continues to get paid less and less while still being a pretty solidly productive player. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's like a fifty percent haircut. He's worth like on paper, if you just look at WAR numbers and stuff like that, it's ten, ten point three, and he's getting five point two. And we've, as you mentioned, you know, we've seen other, you know, Colton Wong get in like a forty percent haircut. Um, guys like that. Um, well, Wong is a slightly different case, but Scope has a sort of a history of being underpaid. So you start to wonder if it's like, maybe he's, is he, I don't want to speculate, is he not a good clubhouse guy? Is What else is going on there? Um, you know, because that's been the knock on other guys who've been overpaid. Like Jose Iglesias had that reputation. Um, you know, I think Brad Miller has that reputation. He's another guy that sort of seems productive, but is always underpaid. Like you find a few guys like that. Uh, but So I think, I don't want to speculate again, but it, that's possible. That's just one theory. But you know, the second making, excuse me, second base market has been dreadful. Cesar Hernandez also got like 50% haircut and a reduction in salary from last year, even though he was quite productive last year. So it's just you know, I think it boils down to scarcity. The opposite of scarcity is just way too much supply and hardly little demand. It's it's an easy position to fill, and so if you're the reasonably productive player, you know, like a scope or a Cesar Hernandez. Yeah, you get some money, but it's not going to be what you're worth. That seems to be the way it's playing out. Yeah, yeah, well put. I mean, if I'm the Tigers, I like getting him back at that point, and I think overall I really like what they've done with their offseason, and that's a pretty natural trans- transition to another signing they made. They picked up Nomar Mazzara, outfielder, $1.75 million deal. Um, so he's <laughs> Mazzara's had a strange career here. He was one of the very best outfield prospects in all of baseball. He debuted as a 21-year-old and he had a pretty solid first year for his for being a 21-year-old. And you you start to think, look at how big this guy is, look at the projection here, look at the the prospect hype that he's had, like this guy could be the next big thing. And he was never the next big thing. He was never even that good. <laughs> and he really just stayed this kind of mediocre league average-ish bat at best, and the glove wasn't all that exciting either. He never really did anything. And so then you end up where you did last offseason, where even though he's only he was only 24 years old at the time, 
the Rangers are ready to move on from him in the midst of a rebuild. So they traded him to the uh, to the Chicago White Sox. At the time, we had him as a non-tender candidate, really, by our values. And they gave up a significant um, outfield prospect. I forget exactly who it was. I think it was Steel, 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 Walker. Steel Walker. Yeah, Steel yep. Walker. Can't forget that name. <laughs> yeah, right. Good name. Um, so they give up Steel Walker, and I believe, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I believe we had him somewhere in the 4 or $5 million yeah. range, maybe even higher than that. Um, so that one was just a full-on rejection by our model, I'm pretty sure. Um, because we had Mazzara at near zero mil. And then what does he do? He goes to Chicago, and he's terrible. I mean, he, he had some injuries, some illness, apparently. Um, but he was still terrible. And so now he... Gets, he gets non-tendered by them, and he signs with the Tigers here for $1.75 million. The reason that we were kind of dunking on that trade when it happened, but I am a big fan of this move for Detroit, is, first of all, this move didn't cost Detroit a significant outfield prospect. It just cost them less than $2 million. Yep. And second, Chicago was about to turn the corner trying to win games, and they picked up such an uncertain commodity, an upside play, Whereas Detroit here, they're picking him up, a 25-year-old, for less than $2 million. Um, and they can, if he, if he does turn the corner for them, if he does click finally, then that's a, either a significant trade piece or a potential building block for their rebuild. And otherwise, they're, it's not like they'll suffer if he's bad on the field in 2021. They're going to be a bad baseball team anyway. So I really like this pickup for them. I do too. It's low risk, high reward. And look, when we were down on Mazzara last year... Um, you know, part of it's relative to the money he was making. He was he was getting into his ARP three year, if I remember correctly, um, and and making like five, six, seven, somewhere in there. But he wasn't worth that, according to our model. And so, which we feel vindicated that he also stunk last year. <laughs> and then, now he's got his big problem is I think you know um, swing and miss. He's just a strikeout machine, and he just can't seem to shake that. And the Rangers said after trading him, like, yeah, we tried this, we tried that, it just wasn't taken. So they just kind of gave up on him. And then you know the White Sox gave up on him too. Um, but you know maybe that's just a teensy bit of upside. To your point, he's only 25, 26 going into this year. So he hasn't maybe hit his prime yet, but look, according to our model, there's a little bit of a modicum of hope there. So we give him a value of 2.2 against a 1.75 million contract. So it's a slight value play for Detroit and maybe, you know, he eventually turns it around and, you know, they can flip him later or keep him. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now we're moving into a bit of a rapid fire here of some really mediocre signings that we might have a word or two to say about, but nothing too substantial. So Red Sox signed Marwin Gonzalez, utility man, one year, $3 million deal. Your thoughts? Fair. Not much bat. Yes. You know, he's another one of these utility guys that, you know, like the second baseman, like there's a, sometimes there's a perception. I think it was mostly because of Ben Zobrist, yeah. you know, because there was this feeling like, Oh, he's a Swiss army knife. He's so valuable. Cause he can play different positions. The problem is nobody plays those positions very well. So, and they're all, you know, it's, once you move them off of shortstop, they're sort of lower value positions. So yeah, he can play second base. Yeah. I can play left field. Yeah. You throw him at first base, but those are all sort of low value. Like he's just sort of like a Jack of all trades that doesn't, do any one of them particular well is my point so you're not going to get into my earlier point 
it's not like you're bringing great defense to second base or even that, that that's valued anymore. So there's not really a value to that sort of versatility, even though it saves a roster spot. You want to kind of go like that. There's a, there's a bunch of those guys. They're always on the DFA, DFA waiver wire. So you're not going to spend too much. And his bat sort of sunk after his big year with the, with the Astros. You know, he's reunited with his old Astros manager, so maybe that'll wake him up a little bit, but there's not much there, so he's getting paid what he's worth. Yeah, every team, it seems, has a guy like that these days, just the way the game's changed and the way rosters are used. With with teams emphasizing larger bullpens, it seems every team has either developed or signed a guy like this who can back up in multiple positions, so there isn't as much demand for them once they are on the free agent market, because you say, hey, I got a 26-year-old who can do the same thing. Exactly. And he'll do it for free. Mm-hmm. Um I will say that the Red Sox didn't necessarily have a clear-cut one of those guys, so that's kind of why they go out and get Marlon Gonzalez. They have Kike Hernandez, but he's right now he's lined up as more of an everyday player for them at, at either second base or center field, depending on whether they add Jackie Bradley Jr. or another center fielder or not. Um, but Gonzalez, you're right, he's only really had the one standout offensive season, and that was in 2017, and you can say it was the trash cans. <laughs> I'm not saying that, I'm just saying, you could say that's what it is. You could. <laughs> A one could argue. <laughs> um, so that was his only real standout season, and after that, I mean, outside of that, he's been about, you know, somewhere between a 90 and 100 WRC+, plus, like slightly below league average bat which isn't horrible if you're just expecting him to be a bench piece backup guy, and I think that's pretty much what the Red Sox are hoping for out of him. He's he's the guy that if Rafael Devers needs to miss a month or two, you can plug Marlon Gonzalez in there instead of having to stick with Christian Arroyo or Jonathan Arouse or whoever yeah. every yeah. day for an extended period of time. So right. not a bad addition, but also there's a reason he only got $3 million. Yeah. Okay, Reds, or excuse me, A's re-signed Mike Fires. We alluded to this earlier with the money that they saved in the Chris Davis-Elvis Andrus deal. So they bring back their fifth starter, essentially, Mike Fires, on a one-year, $3.5 million deal. Fires wasn't horrible in 2020, but he wasn't very good either, and all of his numbers kind of took a decline. His velocity, his strikeouts, um, his walk rate, uh, I believe, increased. So nothing flashy here they kind of just want some innings eaten and they're getting it for a year and three and a half million dollars speaking of trash cans (laughs) (laughs) excellent transition (laughs) yeah there's that too um um, coincidentally but um look he's gonna be 36 um our model doesn't see much to like here like he's like a one million dollar guy at this point a lot of decline here I think the A's actually overpaid for this one, um, mostly probably due to, oh, well, he's familiar. He's a warm body. You know, he's our guy. <laughs> so he's a fifth starter. I think they probably could have spent it a little smarter, but uh, it's not outrageous. So, you know, and he does have a tendency to outpitch his numbers a little bit. You know, he occasionally throws a no-hitter. I don't know if he ever will again, but which gives him a little publicity. Like, oh, Mike Fires threw another no-hitter. Like, where did that come from? Like, once, you know, like he has this reputation for being a little better than he actually is in terms of results. And I can't quite explain why. Um, and maybe it's because he's, a, you know, he's got a great defense behind him. So that probably helps. Uh, but his actual pitching numbers are not pretty. So um, he's just a he's just generic innings eager at this point. Yeah, I believe Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle, formerly the A's beat writer, now the Giants beat writer, <laughs> but still obviously has uh, all of her A's connections. Uh, she 
noted that the A's were the only team to make an offer to Fires, and she kind of alluded to, is he being blackballed by the rest of the league for whistleblowing? I don't think that's anywhere near the case. I'd say yeah. the Astros obviously aren't going to sign the guy, and maybe the Red Sox and maybe a couple other teams that aren't too happy about it, but I think it's a larger factor that he's just been bad and declining and old, and there really isn't much to look at here and say, oh, he can rebound. It's just more of, oh, he can eat 100 innings for us, 150 innings for us, and they'll be league average or below league average, but at least we can bank on those innings. And it's something we discussed uh, last week, talking about the Blue Jays and the article I wrote about them, where jumping from 60 games to 162 games, no one really knows how that's going to work out on pitchers' arms. So guys, teams really just want all of the depth they can get, all the guaranteed innings that they can sign. And so the A's, yeah, it's probably an overpay. Um, three and a half million does feel like a bit much for a guy that has struggled the way he has. He, I see him more as, like you said, a one-year, $1 million type or even a minor league type. But if they're just saying, like, we've been in contact with this guy, we like who he is in the clubhouse, we know him, he's a known commodity, and we don't want to argue over this throughout spring training and only come to an agreement with him or lose out on him entirely and not add that veteran arm that we wanted. Let's just pay him three and a half million now and get it done. I think that's defensible. Yeah. And by the way, that was announced after the, the Davis Andrews trade where they freed up some money. So that's what ended up paying for them. So it's not like they went crazy. Like, Hey, we're going to spend three and a half million. Cause we just got some, um, on my fires, <laughs> um, but did certainly help. Otherwise they would have probably gone with a replacement level arm, like a younger, you know, waiver wire guy, which arguably is about the same quality as fires at this point. So I, I would argue that actually, but so I think they overpaid a little bit, but you know, maybe it's familiarity. Maybe he's a good clubhouse leader. I don't know. Um, all yeah. of the above. Yeah. Kind of like the Cardinals. Hey, yeah, but yeah. to a much lesser extent. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the A's aren't necessarily a team known for bringing their guys back unless yeah. they are this type or a Brett Anderson <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, along those lines. Yeah. Uh, okay, a couple that we'll loop in together here. The Cubs signed Jake Marisnik and the Mets signed Albert Almora. As you told me before this podcast, they're the same person. <laughs> they are the same person. <laughs> no bat. Decent glove, put him in in the eighth inning and get some defense out of him. <laughs> yeah, I'd argue Almora at least has, you can at least say, oh, he's, he's in his 20s. He's maybe got a little bit of something. He doesn't, but you could at least say that maybe he does. Mm. Um, he's also just got less of a track record than Marisnik. They signed similar deals here. Cubs get Marisnik for one year, 1.5. Mets get Almora for one year, 1.25. They're both just really certain gloves in center field for teams that didn't have those options. As of now, it's looking like the Mets will platoon Almora with Brandon Nimmo out in center field, and Nimmo is kind of a stretch at that position. So at least against lefties, they'll have an average to above average glove out there. And the Cubs, they were considering jock peterson in center field i don't know if this is a similar situation where marisnik will platoon with peterson or if he's going to bump peterson to a corner as he possibly <clears throat> should but yeah the, the point here to make is that glove first center fielders do not get paid even their field values are almost identical we have marisnik at 1.7 and and i'm sorry 1.4 and Almora at 1.7 and they're both getting like one ish you know in salary yeah. so it's the same guy um 
Now, um, on a serious note, uh, Almora, you recall, um, had hit, hit that foul ball that that uh, hit that little girl, which was horrible and tragic, and it might have affected him. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I'm sure it did, and I don't know if there's sort of lingering after effect on that on his on his offense. Um, but uh, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, after after that point, how do you step in a batter's box and just yeah. treat it like it's normal again? You you can't. <clears throat> yeah. All right. This last free agent signing here is significantly more interesting than the last handful here. It's one of these two-year, let's let's spend the first year rehabbing you and the second year hopefully get some value out of you type deals that we see a lot of these days. We saw, I think the first guy that we really notably saw it with was Nathan Evaldi a few years back. The Rays signed him to one of these kind of deals, uh, but we saw Garrett Richards with the Padres, similar thing. Mm-hmm. There, there's a handful of others. This time it's the Mariners signing Ken Giles. Uh, he had Tommy John, and so he will be out for the entirety of 2021. But he will ideally, hopefully for them, return in 2022. And he's been a pretty reliable reliever for the majority of his career, albeit reliable with an asterisk there. I think season to season, you look at him and he's been reliable, but within each season, there's always a stretch where he's about to lose the closer's job, or he does, and then he puts together some good performances in a setup role and kind of bounces back and forth, but he always ends the ends the year around the same mark. Uh, so we don't have a dollar value reported on that yet, just that it's a two-year deal. Um, but it, it makes sense for a rebuilding team like the Mariners. You figure they can either flip... Giles um, at the end or uh, flip him at the deadline in that second year or maybe everything breaks right for them and they're suddenly competitive. Yeah, it's been a surprisingly quiet year for DePoto. Um, he's normally uh, you know, quite active on the trade market, but you know, I, I think it's smart that he hasn't because he's just, you know, nurturing his young core. He's really built quite a quite a good farm there and kind of um, return that organization around. So they're not competitive yet, but you know, this is a signal that they might be in 2022 when Giles is back and ready, presumably. So they might have an asset there and, and they may be thinking, hey, the AOS is maybe up for grabs because maybe this is the last year where the Astros and A's may be good before they rebuild and we'll be set up for success in 2022. Who knows what the Angels are doing, but you know, he's thinking ahead a little bit, I think here. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely by no means a bad move. Um, let me <clears throat> let me just clarify there real quick, um, or correct myself, I guess. He's been pretty consistent as far as his FIP goes year to year. Um, he's mm. only really had one standout bad year by that measure, uh, not counting his three and two-thirds innings in 2020 before he got hurt. Uh, so his FIP's been pretty consistent year to year, usually around mid to high twos, low threes, something around that range. But his ERA has bounced around a little bit. He had a couple of elite years near the beginning of his career, then a stretch of some struggles up in the high fours. Um, oh, excuse me. Those are actually two te- two seasons that are split up, so it looks that way. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I'm okay. correcting myself back and forth here. His ERA does bounce around a little bit, and he has had some rough years, but his fifth is pretty consistent. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, so now two more signings that aren't necessarily free agent signings. A couple extensions here that are just a little interesting. And wanna wanna quickly explain because I saw some people who still don't quite get this concept here. So the Angels signed Shohei Otani to a two-year extension to avoid arbitration, and the Dodgers did the same thing a couple of days later with Walker Bueller. And so Otani is gonna get three million dollars in 2021, five and a half million in 2022, 
and Bueller is going to get 8 million guaranteed over the two seasons. I don't see a breakdown in here of exactly how that'll pay. Oh, it's right there. Sorry. 2.75 million in 2021, 3.25 million in 2022, $2 million signing bonus. And there are significant, um, uh, significant escalators in there for Bueller. Um, if he, if he hits certain game start marks. So it seems like that deal will increase there. The game started, uh, escalators start at 14 games. So if you, if you figure he's going to start 30 games a year, then that, that can add up pretty quickly. 500 K for 14 games, 16 games, 18 games, 20, 24, 28. Um, but basically the point we wanted to make here is that a lot of people were shocked at the Dodgers. Oh my goodness. That's so cheap for, for Bueller two years, $8 million for a young frontline starter. What's going on here? And it's just that they're in their arbitration years. I, these are, for Bueller in particular, he was a super two. So this is his first two out of four arbitration years that are getting covered. And he wasn't expected to earn, even if, even con continuing at the level that he is at, uh, wasn't likely to earn too much money in either of those two years. He was projected by MLB trade rumors in the 2.3 to $3.1 million range for this season. So you figure next season that bumps up to the five or six. And if he hits these, game started escalators that's kind of what this deal will look like so it's really just these teams paying for some certainty yeah in these two seasons it's they're not getting this incredible discount i guess you could argue that they are getting a discount because that's just how arbitration works it underpays these guys um during their first couple of years so you could argue from that standpoint yeah they got a bit good bargain on these guys but they're really just playing within the system there's nothing overly shocking about either of these extensions no, and it doesn't really change the values all that much because, to your point, you know, Bueller is still not making all that much, and this is just sort of locking in the fact that he's not making all that much yet. Which, you you know, it doesn't change the value because he's got a huge amount of surplus. I mean, he's still one of the, the highest surplus players, certainly pitchers, but overall players, you know, on the market. You know, he's well into the hundreds in terms of surplus, which just shows you how underpaid he is, you know, and this arbitration system is kind of ridiculous in that respect and then the whole point of our trade values is basically based on surplus and basically saying how underpaid these guys are right um that's the extra amount you would have to, to pay in player value over and above their salaries and if their salaries are this low then you're going to have a whole bunch of surplus and that's why um, bueller's uh, is so high um so it didn't really change anything that much um, in Otani's case, though, you know, it, it didn't really change anything there either. But I just wanted to point out that his value has really been going down. You know, his field value has been going, you know, he's been injured a lot. He's just basically a DH. You're not sure if he's going to bring any table as a pitcher. You know, what we do is we have to add up his field value as both a, a DH and a pitcher and then put the two together and then match those up against what he's going to be making. Um, but, you know, he's really, you know, he was one of the highest value players a year or two ago, more like two years ago, a little bit less so last year. But now he's down to like 14 and surplus 15 if you add a little more market value. So, you know, he's only got three years left of control. Um, he could very much turn it around if he can find his health again and pitch well again. But if not, he's basically just a DH at this point. So, um, you know, that's not a lot of value. Yeah, for as long as he is a two, two-way player, I personally just can't picture any situation in which the Angels trade him. <laughs> I, I, I think the only natural way that these two 
kind of kind of part ways at some point. Obviously, I'm not talking about this year or next year because those years are now guaranteed. Um, but I could see a non-tender if he continues in this injury-prone direction where he is DH only and maybe his production falls off, or they play out his team control years and either he gets extended or he walks in free agency, whatever. I it's so it's it's a weird connection between the two teams that they've had since day one when Otani kind of picked them out of nowhere. Yeah. That it's, I can't picture them trading him. Um, and in Otani, you have a guy who is incredibly difficult to value and difficult to model here from any perspective here because even before the injuries and everything, here's a guy who pitches at an elite level and hits at an elite level. And so it's, it's hard to gauge how exactly teams will value that because obviously there's a huge advantage there to having a guy that can do both. But you also kind of have to work around him because he hasn't been DHing on days after he starts. Mm-hmm. So you have to have kind of a an extra bat on on the bench to make up for those days and he does only pitch once a week so you have to have an extra guy in your rotation so that kind of kind of counteracts some of the roster benefits that comes with having this two-way player exactly so personally and, and then you factor in that you don't know what to expect from him on the mound going forward because of the injuries and that he is only a dh and that his bat wasn't the most consistent in 2020 and so you end up with a guy who i do not want to touch from a value standpoint so when we are doing our updates and we split them up, I usually say, hey, I've updated hidden <laughs> numbers for Otani. John, please handle the rest of it. And I don't know what you do. You work your magic and you come up to a number. I sort of figured it out, but I'm not – yeah, there's a it's lot not like of you have anything. There. You don't really have anything to compare him to and check and say, yeah, that yeah. looks right because this other two-way player was traded in this deal and it looked like this. There's no real comparison for Otani, so it's just kind of taking your best guess and running with it. Yeah, I'm just going with the numbers on this one. You know, what the numbers say on the offensive side, what the numbers say on the pitching side, and add them up, subtract against salary. There you go. Um, so, yeah, he's an interesting case. Uh, but I, I see why you don't want to touch it. <laughs> High variance, too. Yeah. Okay. Trade rumor here that will lead into our trade of the week is that we have a little bit more buzz again between the Mets and Chris Bryant here. Mets and the Cubs for Chris Bryant, I should say. Uh, Andy Martino of SNY reporting that it's it's been kind of quiet between the two teams for a while, but now he's hearing that they're re-engaging a little bit. So with that in mind, we have our trade of the week here. Additional reports coming out saying that uh, the, the Mets are looking to offload in a trade at least one of their two higher paid relievers. They got Dylan Betances, who's making $6.8 million, and Jerry's Familia, who's making thirteen. So... We have both of these guys in this trade of the week here going from the Mets to the Cubs to kind of offset some of the value here and offset some of Brian's contract. In addition, they would send J.D. Davis, 28-year-old third baseman, $16.1 million surplus value, and Thomas Sapuki, who's a minor league left-handed pitcher, $2.4 million. And in exchange, the Mets are just getting back Bryant and his full contract, which gives him a surplus of $2.8 million. So this proposal... It checks off a lot of boxes. I think it checks off every box for the Mets here, right? I mean, they offload two of the contracts that they wanted to, two of these relievers, where you could you could squint and see, like, yeah, maybe they, they can provide some on-field value in 2021, but they're vastly overpaid, and you'd much rather put that money toward a Bryant type. So they offload those two guys. They're giving up Zapuki, who isn't really a huge factor in their long-term or short-term plans, and then Davis, who is effectively replaced by Bryant because Davis is pretty mediocre defender doesn't have a solid position and especially on a team with a lot of mediocre defenders you want to kind of mitigate that as best as you can so i see it from their side this is a perfect deal from the Mets side in my opinion 
don't see it as much from the Cubs side at all. <clears throat> I agree. And thanks for uh, proposing this, Jack S. Um, mm-hmm. We've got um, more likes than dislikes on this one at the moment. We're recording this. There's 24 likes and 15 dislikes. I, because I think to the points you make, it kind of makes sense, at least from the Mets' perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, I think – I mean, the Cubs are still, you know – in public at least saying yeah we haven't been blown away by an offer for Bryant that's why we haven't moved him yeah I, mean, I don't think they're gonna get blown away you know because of the contract and because of his downtrend and in you know and he's not been great defensively either lately at third base so you know that's why his surplus is low and that by the way that includes the assumption that he would get a draft pick after you him after the year so <clears throat> which means he's basically at zero surplus, but that extra 2.8 is basically the draft pick value. Um, so, so they could easily just sort of keep him for the year and pay the money and get the draft pick. And then when he goes off to free agency, so why wouldn't they do that? Why would they take back these bad, bad contracts and familiar containers? The only reason why would be because they've got extra years of control of J.D. Davis, because they know they're going to lose Bryant after this year anyway, so they can have a, a, a bat replacement. He does have a really good bat, and some people wonder, well, aren't you a little bit high in his value? Man, the bat really plays. And I, I said before, offense, you know, the market pays for offense more so than defense. And no, he's not great defensively. Um, and next year, he may end up being a D.H. in the NL if he stays in the NL. Um, but anyway, there's there's value there, and there's several years of control there. So so that's the attraction I can see for the Cubs. So I can see it making sense if I squint a little bit that way. I, I also sort of hesitate because the Cubs, I'm not sure if they're wanting to shed salary anymore because now we've heard conflicting things. So like, what's their motivation for trading Bryant? And if they do trade him, is it to save salary? Because they wouldn't be saving salary if they're taking Familia and Batances. So. Yeah, I struggle with this a little bit from those perspectives. Yeah, I can see it a lot more from them if you swap out Davis for um, maybe a Beatty or one of these other prospects in that similar range um, yeah. that's maybe a year or two away. Because I don't think it's, I don't think the Cubs' next window of contention lines up with Davis's four years of team control. Yeah. You see that they're losing Bryant, they're losing Baez most likely. Uh, they got Anthony Rizzo, who's only getting older. Contreras and they him after years. a year, too. Yeah. Yes. Contreras has two years of control left. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Hayward's there forever, but he's not all that great. And then no. you start to look at the other long-term pieces that have already made themselves known at the major league level. You're looking at Nico Horner, who's pretty good, but not a superstar, not really established. He's not a guy you're expecting to be a star-level contributor in the next year or two. Ian Happ, similar thing. He's... Kyle Hendricks, yeah, he's a good starting pitcher, but he's only one starting pitcher. And most of their prospects are at least a year or two away from making an impact. Maybe they maybe they make their debuts in 2021, but they're probably not making a significant impact at the major league level until 2022-2023. And so by then, you've already wasted a year, year and a half, two years of J.D. Davis's value that you get, and you're just getting the last yeah. two years when he's in his 30s and entering his decline. And so I think yeah. if you switch him out for a 23, 22, 24-year-old, somewhere in that range, prospect of similar value, then this makes a lot more sense. You know, you're taking on some money to add a significant long-term piece here that can join guys like Miguel Amaya, Brennan Davis, Braylon Marquez, Ed Howard, some of these guys. It looks like the next wave of big Cubs talent is yeah. two years away at the earliest. 
So I think that would make it make more sense. It obviously makes it make less sense for the Mets because then right. they're left with just this extra J.D. Davis to do nothing with. Maybe they can right. find a different trade for him. Maybe you make it a three-team deal where Davis goes to this other team in need of a bat, and that, that team sends a prospect of that ilk to the Cubs, and that makes more, a lot more sense to me. But I think yeah. here, in this situation, the Cubs look at this return and they say, okay, we're getting a guy who's already 28, and we're not going to be that good these next couple of years, and then in kind of middling prospect in Sapuki and we have to take all this money on at that point let's just ride Bryant out either trade him for something at the deadline if a better offer comes along or take the qualifying offer and get a draft pick that'll better fit our personal timeline here yeah uh, that's well said yeah um yeah that's (laughs) I think you articulated it well um it doesn't make as much sense from the Cubs from that point of view but if he didn't include Davis, then I don't think the Mets do it because then where are they going to put him? And they're basically wasting him on the bench. So and they've already got a problem with a log jam with Smith and and Lonzo. So in the corners, so yeah, they're kind of stuck with three corner guys and not and you know they don't have a, a natural center fielder. So that's another reason why we've been skeptical about whether they're going to sign JBJ or not. I know they just signed on Mora, but I think he's more of a sort of relating defense guy, not a starter so much. Anyway, I, that's a predicament that the, the Mets are in with their sort of log jam at the corners and they don't have an obvious third baseman so if they can get rid of Davis in a, in a deal for, for O'Brien then I think it makes sense and if, maybe it's a three way so to your point it's uh, the only way I see it working I will add that it's a good predicament that they've put themselves in from, <clears throat> from kind of a value standpoint here where they've managed to extract a lot of value from Dom Smith when it looked like he was a failed prospect and from J.D. Mm-hmm. Davis when he was just kind of this minor addition from, from a crowded Astros roster. Mm-hmm. And then Alonso obviously is a longtime top prospect. So it's, of course, they're, you kind of expect to get the value out of him. But these other guys, they've, yeah. kinda, they've worked them into, I don't know how much credit to give the Mets for that versus how much credit to give the players for that. Uh, but they've developed into solid, solid bats that they have to find a position for. And so... It's not necessarily the problem of, oh, goodness, why did they trade for a Cano or assign Jed Lowry or, oh, my goodness, what was Brody Van Wagenen thinking? It's more of <laughs> this is just how it's kind of turned out that these guys have rocks for gloves and we need to find something to do about it. Yeah, exactly. From that, from <clears throat> there, I don't want to give this too much time because I don't think it has too much credibility, <laughs> but uh, Craig Carlton of some Mets radio I believe WFAN 101.9. That's that's a radio station. Yeah, <laughs> he's he reported today that the Mets have talked to the A's about Matt Chapman, and so this is the only report that I've seen from any sort of blue check mark verifiable force uh, source here. Um, and there was a similar trade rumor a week or two back about the Med- Mets talking to the A's about Ramon Laureano. And that one just didn't gain quite as much traction because, again, it was from it wasn't from one of your traditional newsbreakers. It was from this smaller account. Um, so it's hard to put too much stock into this rumor, especially after a lot of the A's recent moves. I think if you had already seen an off season in which the A's started to offload a Marcana and uh, you know a, a even Ramon Laureano or Matt Olson or something along <clears> those lines, Sean that's Manaya. where you see Sean yeah. Manaya, Yes, that's where you see all right, the team's blowing it up. They're yeah. trying to cut all their costs. They're going to they're gonna trade Matt Chapman. Instead, you're seeing a team that stayed really quiet for a while, made some really, really minor additions, and then made this really creative trade with the goal of being competitive 
more competitive in 2021 by shifting their aging DH and shifting that kind of contract to a position of need at shortstop. So it's pretty clear that they're trying to contend in 2021. And if you're trying to do that, you don't trade Matt Chapman. (laughs) He's your best player. And on top of that, the price tag is just so high for Chapman. Even after some of his struggles in 2020, and he, he had the injury, he had some strikeout issues, um, his plate discipline was really a mess all season. He really never got it going. Um, even with those struggles, we still have him at $68.2 million in surplus. And so I'm seeing some of the proposals here. A couple of them have uh, have the A's, including Stephen Piscotti, who's at a negative 11.2 to kind of offset things. Um, some of them have Jake Diekman. There, there's a couple, a handful of offers here. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of them really make much sense for the A's right now, given the position that they're in. Obviously the Mets would love to have Matt Chapman. Every team in baseball would love to have Matt Chapman right now. But I I think, and I I do not expect Matt Chapman to be extended by the A's, nor do I necessarily expect him to finish out his, his next three years of team control with the A's. But I don't think this is the time that they trade him either. No, I, I don't think so either. I think that's, that's just, you know, look, teams talk to, each other all the time right so it's not really news like eh, they check in they text each other it's not like oh my gosh there's a whole like thing going on here i think it's just a check-in just to see what our options are and to your point i don't think the i think the a's have made it clear they're still trying to contend with this current core it's probably the last year of this current core though by by you know most reasonable people would say chapman and Olsen are going to be expensive after this year and so they're probably going to trade them with two years control rather than the current three um, but with three years of control, Matt Chapman's basically a five-war player, um, presuming he <clears throat> returns to his normal self this year. After, apparently the hip surgery went well, so we'll see. But we have him at 68.2. We might even be conservative on that, but that's that's a reasonable number given the injury. Um, and that's going to require a haul. The A's also have a really weak farm, rated 29th by Baseball America. Not much going on on the farm, and so they're going to need to restock at some point. So for a variety of reasons, I think this is probably their last year going for it, at which point, you know, Chapman's value, you know, all things considered, if it goes as normal, when he has two years of control left, it's not going to be 68. It's going to be more like 40 or 50, somewhere in there. You know, it'll still get a good return, but it's not going to be the haul that they get now. Um, but you have to weigh that against the fact that they all seem to indicate that they're, you know, they won the AL West last year. They've been playoffs three years in a row. They're going to give it one last shot here, so I don't think they're cheating trading Chapman yet yeah I, I'd agree with all of that entirely I mean the A's are in this weird spot where even if they do it doesn't make complete sense it makes a lot of sense to rebuild next year like you say Chapman and Olsen get expensive they lose Canada free agency anyway uh, guys like Chris Bassett and Sean Manaya and Frankie mm-hmm. Montas they're getting more expensive and they would have they have notable trade value Mm-hmm. Um, but then you look at guys like Loriano, who's got an extra couple years of control compared to those guys. You've got Jesus Lazardo and Sean Murphy, who are really breaking out onto the scene as young stars. And you look in, it's, I don't think I can think of any teams that have blown it up in a situation like that. So it'll be really interesting to see if things will turn around in 2021 from a revenue standpoint. Uh, interesting to see at what point we actually get significant fans in the stands and, and you can make all your jokes about how the A's never have significant fans in the stands and those are those are pretty valid jokes I mean, John and I have both been to our share of empty A's games but 
it is a significant revenue factor even if there are 10,000 people there well that's 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 some money right there that you're getting every night that you didn't get in 2020 and you're not going to get to start 2021 so you think between that and the ballpark maybe you squint and see a way that they hold it all together for another year or two uh just because it's it's difficult to imagine you trade chapman and olsen <laughs> and you trade maybe Manaya bassett whoever you still got Loriano and Lazardo and Murphy hanging around. At that point, it's not a full teardown, but it's also way too early to trade those guys. So it's yeah. it's they're in a weird spot. And I think the move out of all of these that makes the least sense is trading Matt Chapman right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can agree on that. So that's probably not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it, but it, you know, he's been in the rumors for a while. The Dodgers still obviously haven't solved. Uh, settled on a third baseman yet either so they've been rumored a little bit but it's mostly speculation i wouldn't say there's there's any sort of real fire there yeah this is i i equate this rumor here to those rumors that had castillo going to the yankees luis castillo and oh it's a Mm -hmm. done deal and it'll be torres and and, and while those names were (laughs) those might have very well been names that they were discussing in a potential deal as we mentioned at that time the the kind of proposed outline there of like torres and frazier and then taking on a bad contract like cast like that lined up pretty well from a value standpoint uh, well enough to the point where it's like this isn't something that somebody would necessarily speculate on their own there yeah. had to be some sort of crumbs of a rumor here yeah uh, but, but a lot of those guys just jumped the gun and said it's done it's a done deal this is happening there's a lot of traction toward this i think this is along those lines like where, like you said teams check in on guys all the time teams are always talking to each other i have no doubts that at some point during this offseason sandy alderson with the mets and who has spent a, lot, a large portion of his career with the A's, he called up mm-hmm. Bean Enforced and said, yep. hey, what's the price on Matt Chapman looking like? I also have no doubts in my mind that they said, uh, we're not really looking into this right now. And that was yeah. also that was also reported at the time of the, uh, I believe at the time of the Elvis Andrews trade, Ken Rosenthal reported that they're not currently listening on Chapman and Olsen. Right. So I, we could very well be wrong. Uh, and if we are, I'll hop in and <laughs> if, if in the next six 12 hours whatever between the end of this recording and when this podcast posts there are significant developments i will hop back on and record a little blip and say hey we were stupid (laughs) but i highly doubt that happens i highly doubt the 2021 season starts with matt chapman on any team other than the a's i would agree all right that's a pretty solid episode right there if i if i do say so myself (laughs) we covered a lot covered some speculation covered some real news and i think had a pretty good time doing it Yeah, as always. (laughs) And we're getting closer and closer every week to spring training. We're getting little reports here about maybe some limited fans in attendance. So uh, I'm out here in Arizona. I'll have to I'll have to weigh weigh some of the safety and all of that and see if it is a possibility to go to some games in person and if it's worth it, if it's if it's safe. Uh, But we're getting there. We're getting really close. And then once spring training starts, it's only a matter of weeks until we have a real season to talk about. Yeah, the trucks are on the road. The equipment's coming. It's all coming your way, man. Exactly. (laughs) All right, but that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We will be back next week to break down more off-season news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the off-season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.